According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth, as always, comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, turning in our Bibles to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. We don't always, uh, in our tradition and style, customs and practices of teaching. Remember in Romans chapter 6, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And there are a variety of forms of teaching out there to which folks are committed. But in our style, we don't always uh, have seasonally appropriate messages per se, um, the Holy Spirit has a marvelous way of working those things out, however. And uh, given that we are in a series in Isaiah and Jeremiah, um, it is interesting that we are approaching the Christmas messages, even as we are approaching the Christmas season. For today, we are in Isaiah chapter 7. A, a child, uh, ask a sign for yourself, and uh, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So we have some uh, opportunities today to learn what this ch- uh, chapter is about, and then we can make use of this doctrine, this content, in uh, the coming weeks as, I don't know about your family, but in some cases, in a lot of cases, uh, there are family gatherings and holiday occasions and so forth, and you find yourself with folks that need to hear this message. And um, it's a good opportunity to refresh what the gospel is all about and why it is that our Savior had to come as he did, humble, why he came as he did, born of a virgin, and all the details that we have here in this particular chapter. So here's where we are. All right, Isaiah chapter 7, as we get started, let's go before the Father in prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's ask God the Father to lead us into the study of his word today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to assemble together. Father, I thank you for the, uh, the faithfulness of your son, for his humility, for his obedience, for all that he achieved, Father, on our behalf. And I ask as we study to show ourselves approved that we might fix our eyes firmly upon him, Father, the author and finisher of our faith. Open the eyes of our understanding and give us ears to hear on this day. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, there are other verses in this chapter besides verse 14, although I expect uh, the bulk of our time will be spent. Uh, it's kind of, you've got to pick and choose when you've got an hour to deal with the chapter, and next week we're moving on to chapter 8. Um, I do expect that the bulk of our focus will pay attention to verse 14 and the, the marvelous prophecy, but there's background that leads up to it, and then there's also follow-up that comes in the message afterwards, and a message of wrath and a message of judgment that's going to come upon the land of, uh, of Jerusalem. And so uh, I think if we understand the different sections of Isaiah chapter 7, we will do very well with it. Let's start with the first uh, nine verses anyway. It came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. 
Now, last week we were in chapter 6 when we talked about King Uzziah and how Uzziah intruded into the temple and how he was struck with leprosy for the rest of his days. Now, we've actually come forward several years. We've come forward in time to the reign of his grandson, his grandson Ahaz, who is the son of Jotham, who is the son of Uzziah. And we're dealing with war here in this chapter that is pitting Jew against Jew. Because remember, after David, or after Solomon, the kingdom was split. And Jeroboam and his rebellion took 10 tribes away. 10, that's the majority of a 12-tribe nation. And 10 tribes uh, split to the north and formed what is usually called the kingdom of Israel, or the northern kingdom of Israel, to distinguish it from the overall kingdom of Israel under Solomon and, and David and so forth. And so now here is their sister nation, as uh, Ahaz is ruling in Jerusalem, Ahaz is the king of Judah, and basically that's just two, two little old tribes. It's Judah and Benjamin there in the south, plus some faithful Levites and priests and whatnot in conducting the temple service. Because they may have lost 10 out of 12 tribes, but they got the temple. <laughs> All right? And this was really a, a dividing issue and what caused the northern kingdom to be so idolatrous. They realized very quickly, we're going to lose our people because they've got that temple down there in Jerusalem. So they created a, a double golden calf situation with some uh, built-in idolatry and a whole lot of sex and things that would keep people excited about uh, staying in the north with their, uh, with their religious pagan practices. And this is the period of time we're dealing with here. Ahaz, king of Judah, was a wicked king. He was a wicked king with tragic consequences for his children and for his nation. Remember, in the uh, divided kingdom, you want to color code these kings and then remind yourself, good king, bad king, right? And uh, if you have to take a guess uh, or flip a coin, um, you you need to do that in the south uh, until you learn the real good kings, and then you can just assume, if I don't know much about this guy, he's probably not a good king, all right? Uh, you have good king Joash, you got good king Hezekiah, you got an assortment of good kings. Um, Ahaz is not in that list, all right? You want to color code him with the bad king color, whatever color you so choose in your, uh, in your diagram. In the northern kingdom, it's a, it's a lot easier, it's a lot easier because in the northern kingdom, from Jeroboam all the way to Hosea, you got a long string of kings, and not one of them was any good. They were all wicked kings in the north. It's only in the south that you've got to go back and forth. If we want to get the background on this, we can glean some things in Second Chronicles. So hold your finger in Isaiah 7, and we'll take a look at Second Chronicles chapter 28, and we'll see exactly the kind of wicked king that, uh, that Ahaz was. All right, so get past uh, Psalms and Job and Ezra. We get to Second Chronicles chapter 28. I realized a couple weeks ago I asked you to turn to Second Chronicles and it took too long. We hadn't been in Second Chronicles lately and we need better Bible drills to uh, help flip these pages. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know. Thank you. I don't typically turn it off in the break. Maybe I turned it off after last hour. I'm all kinds of out of sorts today. Yeah, the screen would be good. All right. Some things wake up slowly. But after you've been married for 23 years, you kind of... (laughs) 
You learn to only make those jokes when she's left early with a sick child. All right, thank you. Projector is on. We're ready to go. Second Chronicles chapter 28. Ahaz, king of Judah, was a wicked king with tragic consequences for his children and his nation. All right, if you're a pastor's kid, you're going to be the brunt of a lot of things. If you're the king's kid, it's even worse. All right, particularly when the king is pagan and decides to start worshiping Moloch and it decides that in order to appease the gods that the uh, offspring have to be sacrificed. And this was uh, the idea that Ahaz came up with here. Ahaz, king of Judah, was a wicked king with tragic consequences for his children and for his nation. Ahaz's pagan worship included child sacrifice. And the whole story on this is the first half of Second Chronicles 28. Then the second half we'll see at the end of, of today's message uh, is the follow-up to the uh, virgin prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David his father had done. Remember, every king of Judah was always placed against the benchmark of David, and not because David was perfect, but because David was a man after God's own heart. And when he sinned, he confessed that David set that example for any king or any, any leader. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. That's the problem. When the southern kingdom starts to imitate the northern kingdom, it's wrong every time. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He also made molten images for the Baals. Remember those guys that Elijah defeated? They come back. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, where we get our language for hell and some of the other expressions in Hebrew. Uh, And he burned his sons in fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. You ever understand the conquest of Joshua and the wickedness of the Canaanite nations and what it was that they were driving out when uh, God gave the promised land to the Jewish people. So um, it's kind of interesting. I don't think we often realize that when we memorize our genealogy list and we know what's coming up, the next king after after, uh, Ahaz is Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a marvelous king. He was a good king. He had some some problems and some discipline that he would reap. By and large, Hezekiah was a good king. But he was not the oldest son. And sometimes maybe we don't realize that. He wasn't even the second son or the third son. There were actually several sons that either died by uh, pagan sacrifice, child sacrifice, or were killed in battle uh, by virtue of the warfare that we're looking at here today in Isaiah chapter 7. So he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Wherefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Aram. And this is the background for what we see in Isaiah chapter 7. It's why the king is so scared. That's why God is encouraging him, saying, don't be scared. Just humble yourself, repent, trust in the Lord. Don't be scared. In fact, ask for a sign, anything you want. And you can have confidence knowing that this, uh, this discipline will uh, be ended So the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Aram, and they defeated him and carried away from him a great number of captives and uh, brought them to Damascus. And he was the same Damascus you see in the news today, by the way. He was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who inflicted him with heavy casualties. This is Jewish on Jewish warfare. Pekah, the king of Israel, is attacking. He's joining with Aram against uh, Ahaz here in the the king of Judah. For Pekah, the son of Ramalia, slew in Judah, and the numbers are interesting. It's a whole study on numbers here. 
120,000 in one day, all valiant men because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. And we'll deal with some of these numbers in greater detail, not so much in this class, but in other classes we get into the Hebrew manuscripts and the reasons why there's questions with respect to some of these numbers. 187,000 that are killed in Assyria in a single night that we'll see as the angel of the Lord passes over. But notice, the divine discipline comes because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. Divine discipline upon a nation when you do not walk according to the design of the Word of God, particularly the covenant nation of Israel. But I believe Gentile nations as well will either reap a blessing or discipline based upon our adherence to biblical principles. And then Zikri, a mighty man of Ephraim, slew Messiah, the king's son. Here's another son. And um, Azrakam, the ruler of the house, and Elkanah, the second to the king. So by the time we get to Hezekiah, exactly uh, how young was he? What, uh, what number was he? Was he the fourth son? Uh, we, we don't know, but it's, he's clearly not of the eldest. And so the sons of Israel carried away captive their brethren, 200,000 women, sons and daughters, and they took also a great deal of spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. Understand, this is the background for Isaiah chapter 7. This is why he is so distraught. This is why he's so upset. But a prophet of the Lord was there whose name was Oded. Ever heard of him before? Of course not, because there's no book of Oded in our Bibles and you don't read Chronicles. But here's Oded, the prophet, all right? And keep that in mind, though, okay? Because Isaiah and Micah, these are contemporaries. We do know about them because they have books of the Bible named after them. But understand, there's always more than we sometimes realize in, uh, in every text. So Oded, he goes out here to meet the army which came from Samaria. And he's going to have some ministry here as well in terms of why Israel is going to come under judgment for taking Jewish slaves in, uh, in these verses. So, I think I will skip the rest of that. Ahaz and his pagan worship. This is what we have introduced to us, though, when we read in Isaiah chapter 7. You can rescue your finger now. It came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, this king of Israel went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not conquer it. All right, they could not conquer it. They're going to capture, they're going to take captives, but they cannot take the city itself. Now, when it was reported to the house of David, saying the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, uh-oh, they're coming back. All right, the camp is now uh, another muster, another attempt to, uh, to dislodge Jerusalem. And now uh, Ahaz thinks, man, it was bad enough the first time. What's going to happen next? His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. So he's terrified. And he's terrified based on uh, past results, right? And past results are always indicative of future. uh, No, not always indicative of future results. Past performance is not always indicative of future results. And uh, on any topic you'd care to discuss this morning. Uh, But understand, when you humble yourself before the Lord, the Lord may actually have allowed the previous disappointments to get your attention. The previous discipline may be part of His design to bring about your repentance. And there may be a different outcome this time, if only... You have a different attitude this time than you had the time before. It's going to become the opportunity for Ahaz to get saved, the opportunity for Ahaz to to humble himself before the Lord. 
And just as Oded was sent to the north, Isaiah is going to be sent to the south. And Isaiah is going to be sent with his little boy. He is going to come with Shir Jeshub. All right, with Shir Jeshub. I stayed up all night practicing these names. Now, some of them are not easy. All right, Shir Jeshub. Now, what I find is just startling about Shir Jeshub is that he shows up there in verse 3, and nobody knows why. In fact, he disappears after that. And most commentaries ignore the fact that Shir Jeshub is present for this message being spoken. And I think if you pay attention to Shir Jeshub and why is he even there? You know, does the pastor take his kid with him every time he goes to deliver a message? Um, why is Shir Jeshub there? And I think it's going to answer a lot of questions, particularly when we have the mysterious puzzles that people uh, get wrapped around in terms of verse 15 and verse 16 about uh, the boy that is in view and uh, the prophecy there of, the, of Emmanuel. So, uh, here is Shir Jeshub. Secondly, again, these are just subpoints. these are details, the main heading... Obviously, Ahaz, king of Judah, was a wicked king with tragic consequences for his children and his nation. The reason why, and this is the pattern, if you've ever done a study from Leviticus chapter 26, or if you've never done a study from Leviticus uh, chapter 26, I encourage you to do so. The laws of divine discipline. Judah's apostasy resulted in God applying the cycles of national discipline. And some pastors count five cycles or six cycles. Other pastors that say that uh, number the, the the actual national destruction is cycle number five, or they number it in different ways. Or there's five of warning, and then the destruction is actually the sixth cycle when a nation is removed from human history. Okay, and they, they often will apply it to Gentile nations, but specifically, to be fair, Leviticus is addressed to Israel, the covenant nation. And I believe that although there are patterns that might be applied to the Gentile nations. Um, I'm very cautious with respect to applying all of this. In other words, does a Gentile nation, is America, for example, let's just be plain about it, is America entitled to all five cycles or could God destroy us after just two cycles? All right. And keep in mind, Israel, even when they are nationally destroyed, Israel is still promised a restoration. A remnant shall return, which is a big reason why you have Shir Jeshub there. Shir Jeshub means a remnant shall return. All right? So you take the little boy with you for a couple of reasons. First of all, his name teaches the doctrine. But then secondly, he is so young, you have the opportunity to illustrate a child, an oppor- as Jesus would do. He'd bring the children to him, and he'd use the children as, as props. Jesus didn't use PowerPoint, okay? He used children. And I think that uh, Isaiah is doing the same thing with Shir Jashub. Shir Jashub is too young to know better. But by the time he's old enough to know better, King Ahaz can quit worrying about Pekah and, and resin. All right? All of that's going to go away. And all of that's going to go away because God is faithful, not because King Ahaz is, is wheeling and dealing. He's pulling some political strings behind the scenes. And if I've got to keep you here till 2 in the afternoon, I think we'll take the time to, to teach all that. Because how many people, how many people, as next Tuesday approaches, how many people think that our salvation is going to come if we just vote for the right people. If we get the right politicians, then all our problems are solved. All right? I want to understand the doctrine of this. I'm not saying vote for bad guys. Yes, vote for good guys. But don't trust in men. 
Don't trust in any human being. Trust in the Lord. And let's watch what he does when a king humbles himself before, before him, when a nation humbles himself before him. So in Leviticus 26, we've got the cycles of discipline, and I won't teach the whole chapter here this morning because I want to get through Isaiah 7 this morning. But in Leviticus 26, and just pick up on a few things, the references to the sword that show up, the references to fear that show up and trembling. We saw the reference, everybody was shaking like the trees in the forest, right? That shows this fear, this public hysteria that just sweeps and builds and grows and grows. And, and you know, we have it constantly in the news. Something is going on and everybody just blows it up. Leviticus 26, 16, uh, he says, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away also. You want to know, I'm not concerned about Ebola sweeping through our country. Well, secondarily to my concerns for this nation that has lost its spiritual priorities, as sad as, as apostate as this nation has become, I'm surprised we haven't had stuff worse than Ebola sweeping through this country. Notice, it will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away also. I mean, there's physical affliction, but does that carry across to the soul? You will sow your seed uselessly, so your enemies will eat it up. Verse 17, and so what happens, uh, you know, you're working hard, you're working hard, you're bringing, you're bringing the bread home, and uh, someone else is eating your bread. I will set my face against you so that you'll be struck down before your enemies. You actually start having uh, defeat in various battlefield circumstances. Those who hate you will rule over you. Well, why, why do you want a president that hates his country ruling over you? Well, why do you want uh, Ahaz ruling over Judah? Why do you want Pekah reigning over Israel? In fact, they want to dump Ahaz and put somebody else in there as a puppet. That's their plan when they invade. Finally, then, the defeat that comes in verse 25 shows you a later cycle of discipline. I will also bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance for the covenant. And when you gather together into your cities, I will send pestilence among you so that you shall be delivered into enemy hands. And then you end up with a famine condition and 10 women baking bread in one oven. All right. Anyway, that's Leviticus 26. And we're seeing it played out now in Isaiah chapter 7. We're seeing the hand of God's discipline in the various cycles applying here in Isaiah 7 verses 1 through 9. As we've seen already in Isaiah 7 too, the hearts of the people are shaking as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Now, the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz. Not the day before, not the day after, but on this particular day at this particular time. And not in his temple, or not in his uh, throne room, not in the city, but out somewhere, in a very specific somewhere. You and your son Shir Jashub at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. All right, you know where that is? Got that fixed in your mind? All right, I've got no idea where that is. But I know that this place comes back again later in the book of Isaiah. It's going to be a significant place. And sometimes places are significant, not in themselves, but they're significant because of what happened there a conversation that happened there, or a Bible class that happened there, or an event that happened there. The, the Woodrow Avenue will, uh, property will always be special because of the ordination that happened there and the weddings that happened there and so forth. 
all right? Um, different things are special because of things that happened there. I can show you the park bench at Town Lake where I proposed. And, I mean, stuff like that. that are, no big deal. Who cares? It's a stupid park bench. But it's special to people for whom it's special, all right? Now, this Fuller's Field, this conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. This is going to be a venue for additional ministry down the road, and we'll see how that plays out. And say to him, take care and be calm, have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. See, God's a name-caller, and he calls these two kings stubs of smoldering firebrands. Yeah, they used to be something, but they're, they're on their way out. They're, they're smoldering, and they're just they're about to be extinguished. There's not much fire left. On account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, and because of, and this is very insulting, the son of Remaliah. Doesn't even call him by his name, just calls him by his dad's name. The son of Remaliah, the son of Remaliah, okay? Because Pekah's an usurper. Pekah's not the son of a king. He didn't rightfully become king. His dad wasn't a king. All right. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it. And they've got this conspiracy going. But guess what? God is way ahead of them. He knows the whole, superior, the whole conspiracy and he knows the timetable and he's bringing it to an end. But this is their plot. Their plot was to go up to Judah, terrorize it, make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. And we've got no clue who this guy even was. There's a lot of speculation. The only place we have him in the Bible, the son of Tabeel. Whoever he was, he was the puppet that uh, Pekah and Rezin were going to use in order to create a, a third leg on their tripod. What they were really trying to do, they were trying to stand firm against Assyria. All right, And they didn't want to try to stand just the two of them against Assyria and have a, an enemy Judah at their back. So they felt if they could put a puppet there on the throne and have a friendly Judah at their back, then the three of them might be able to withstand against Assyria. At least that's commonly thought as part of the reason for this. But thus says the Lord God. Okay, So they got their plan, but here's what God says. It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. <laughs> Isn't that great? We have all these plans, we have all these ideas, we plot, we scheme, we have all these things. We can't make it so. God's, God's the one who says, let it be, and it is. Or it shall not be, and there's nothing we can do about it. When he says it shall not be, it's not going to happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. Now, a prophecy that's 65 years out might be all well and good, but how do I know it's true? How am I supposed to get encouraged by that? You want me to just wait around 65 years and see what happens? Okay, well, a 65-year prophecy. How about if we give you something right here, right now, today? And if it happens right here, right now, today, will you believe what I'm telling you is going to happen in 65 years? And this is the entire point. Because there is an even greater message on the way, not just what's going to happen in 65 years. A virgin is going to conceive and bear a son. God himself will dwell among us. The Savior of humanity is, going, is coming into the world. Now, that's still 700 years in the future from the standpoint of Isaiah. All right? And so how about a sign today, something right here, right now, that if you saw it, just ask for yourself whatever you want. Juggling elephants, dancing kangaroos, whatever you want. Okay? Honest politicians. Ask whatever you want. 
Make it as high as heaven or as low as Sheol. Name your miracle. And Isaiah is prepared to do it. That's, that's impressive. I'm drooling now, thinking, man, what would I be asking for? Okay? So, within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. In fact, within about 11 years, they're going to be taken captive by Assyria. Within 65 years, a whole bunch of Assyrian, of uh, Samaritans are going to be brought in to populate their land. And then the entire northern region will, will not be Jewish after that because of the... Uh, the injection of the Samaritans into that territory. All right, so the head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, surely you will not last. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You either trust what he's saying or go do what you're going to do. Have a nice life, okay? And you're going to face the consequences if you don't walk by faith. If you don't respond to the God who's promising this deliverance. Well, sadly, he's not going to respond. God, in his grace, offered Ahaz any sign, any miracle of his choosing. Any sign, any miracle. You pick. It's not as if, uh, you know, I'll give you a sign, uh, you know, stick your hand in your thing, and bring it out, it'll have leprosy, and stick it back, and it'll be healed. And Those were some of the signs that Moses was given, or throw your staff down, it'll turn into a serpent. Moses was given some signs that he could take to Pharaoh, he could take in, in, in the Exodus to bring Israel out of Egypt. But in those cases, God simply told Moses, here's your sign, right? Here's your sign. Okay? Careful. Um... He just tells what the sign is going to be. He doesn't ask Moses, what do you want your sign to be? But here with wicked King Ahaz, he says, you name it, I'll do it. Wow. <laughs> okay, that's, uh, that's an offer. <laughs> oh, ask me what I, oh, let me see. Okay. Of course, God knows that Ahaz isn't going to ask for nothing. Ahaz is, oh, I don't want any part of that. See, the problem is, Ahaz doesn't want a sign from Yahweh. Ahaz doesn't want the word from Yahweh. Ahaz doesn't like Yahweh. So he doesn't ask for any sign at all. If he accepts a sign, that means he has to accept a message. And if he accepts a message, that means he can't keep living the carnal life he's living. A lot of unbelievers you give the gospel to, they're going to reject the gospel just for that very same reason. I've given the gospel to people and they're just absolutely convinced. Oh no. If I get religious like that, then I've got to quit living with my girlfriend. I got to quit fornicating. I got to quit. I'm having too much fun. I've had him tell me that to my face. All right. So he says, the Lord spoke to Ahaz saying, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord, your God, make it deep as shale or high as heaven. Name your miracle. Wow. <laughs> and that's something, what would you ask for? Imagine that. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now he couches this in kind of a spiritual thing, right? Ooh, I'm not going to put the Lord my God to the test. So, ooh, I'm not going to do that. Now, on the surface, that might seem righteous, that might seem good. But see, it's not a gotcha question. God's not trying to trick him. God's not waiting for him to name his miracle and then say, ah, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test and start blasting him for... No, he told him to ask for a miracle. This isn't a setup. 
Do we get so jaded sometimes that we, we get asked a question and then we're, our wheels are spinning and we're thinking, wait a minute, what's he really asking? Wait, wait a minute, where's the trick in that? Wait a minute, what's the fine print? Okay, Because we've, we've known too many used car salesmen or whatever. I don't know. But we, we get jaded that way. We get suspicious. And naturally suspicious people are even more suspicious. Okay, hey, you know who you are. But God's not doing that. He's not saying ask for a sign like he's waiting to set us up. If he's giving you permission to do something, then do it. It's like when the Lord of the Sabbath says, go ahead and pluck the, pluck the heads of grain off there and eat while we're walking through the field here. And the disciples are just eating grain off the field on the Sabbath. They're not breaking the Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath told them to do it. All right. So here's old Ahaz trying to act all holy. Ooh, I'm not going to ask, nor will I test the Lord. Well, you should have asked because he told you to ask. We get it. Testing the Lord is bad, yes. Deuteronomy 6.16, thou shalt not tempt, okay, right? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But you realize what he's doing, he's putting the Lord to the test. That's what he's doing by not obeying the command. By being all weaselly and saying, well, I'm not going to tempt the Lord. He's doing just that. He's testing the Lord. He's testing the Lord's patience. He's testing the Lord's long-suffering because God had told him to ask for a miracle. So he's doing the very thing he says he doesn't want to do. The Lord your God is a jealous God. That's why you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord. See, the, the number one way you put the Lord to the test is by not doing what you're told, by not obeying his commands. And this is what Ahaz is doing. He was told to ask for a sign. He's not doing what he was told. And so he's putting the Lord to the test by saying, I won't put the Lord to the test. All right. Now, if he tells you to do it, you better do it. And there's a specific case coming up with his son, with King Hezekiah. The Lord tells Hezekiah, name your, uh, name your sign. You want the shadow to go up or the shadow to go down? 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. 2 Kings chapter 20. Here's a preview because Hezekiah is going to be featured significantly in the book of Isaiah coming up. And here is an uh, event that we'll have paralleled for us in uh, about chapter 37 or so of Isaiah. But notice 2 Kings 20. Hezekiah is going to get 15 years added to his life. He's repentant. He's humbled. And um, the Lord says, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. You know, it's not the tears and the sorrow that's valuable, but it's the heart of repentance. He says, I will heal you on the third day. You shall go up to the house of the Lord. Why is the third day significant? Okay, well, stay tuned. Um, Then he says, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city, not because you deserve it, but for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. He's going to be faithful to the Davidic covenant. Then Isaiah said, take a cake of figs. And he took and laid it on the boil and he recovered. Now King Hezekiah, Hezekiah said to Isaiah, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me? that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day. 
And Isaiah said, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has spoken. And he gives him an option here. He says, shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or shall go back 10 steps? It's like with Gideon and his fleece. Which side do you want wet? Which side do you want dry? So Hezekiah answered, it is easy for the shadow to decline 10 steps. Let the shadow turn backward 10 steps. And so Isaiah the prophet cried to the Lord, and he brought the shadow on the stairway back 10 steps by which it had gone down. Okay? Does that mean he totally re-unrotated the planet? Or how do you do that? I don't know. Okay? A lot of people speculate. But look what the stairway is called. It goes back up 10 steps by which it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. I love that. The stairway of Ahaz. Here's the guy who wouldn't ask for a sign. (laughs) And now the stairway that's named after him and his son asks for a sign and says, in fact, I want it to be the harder sign than the easier sign because the God I serve is the God that can even do the hard stuff. Okay? I'm not going to ask for something easy. If I ask for something easy, what an insult to my God. He told me to ask. I'm going to ask for something that nobody else can do. I'm going to ask for the hardest thing I can think of. Yeah, let's, let's rotate the planet in the other direction. Let's put the shadow back 10 steps. I believe every believer is challenged to test the Lord in the matter of grace giving. I believe in the matter of your finances. God commands us to tempt him in our finances. Malachi 3.10 Yes, we're under an imperative. We are not to put the Lord our God to the test, except in this, he says, you may test me in this. You may test me in this every time. You may test me in this all day, every day. He says, quit robbing me. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? He says, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. They were skimming on their tithing. They were cheating. No, no. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this. Same language of testing the Lord. And we're not to put the Lord your God to the test, except you may always test him in the matter of giving. If you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things will be added unto you. And you can test him in that today, tomorrow, all day, every day. He will always be faithful if you are seeking him. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. All right. Test me in this. Testing the Lord is bad unless he tells you to do it. And I think with respect to your finances, he always tells you, you can test him every time. Keep your financial priorities straight in the, uh, not the tithing, of course, the New Testament principles of cheerful giving. Now, Isaiah and Shir Jeshub are sent to the highway to the fuller's field in order to encourage Ahaz. In fact, this very same setting, this very same upper conduit by the road that leads to the fuller's field is the very same setting when Assyria is going to come and start taunting King Hezekiah. It's going to be the venue for the Isaiah 36 taunting. And uh, I'm not going to turn there because I'm already 
running behind time. Um, but understand, in the days when now Hezekiah is king, and the Assyrians come, and they start ta- taunting, Rabshakeh comes and starts taunting, and all of the Jewish officials go out there to meet him and say, uh, would you mind speaking in uh, Akkadian or Aramaic? I mean, we don't want you speaking where the Hebrews here can understand. Anyway, we'll deal with that when we get into chapter 36. But no, he continues his taunts. He continues his taunts in the full hearing of all the people so that they can be scared too. The same setting, the same venue. And it's Hezekiah's opportunity to say, wait a minute, my father failed at that field. I want to have a victory at that field, at that upper conduit of that fuller's field. That was a place where King Ahaz blew it because the prophet told him to ask for a sign. He wouldn't ask for a sign. That very same venue is where now Hezekiah has a chance to apply faith and trust in the Lord. All right, this virgin birth prophecy. Hmm. The virgin birth prophecy is more than a personal encouragement to a single wicked king. See what happens here. Ahaz says, I'm not going to ask. I will not test the Lord. And so Isaiah says, well, now listen now. O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give y'all a sign. Okay? Y'all. This is more than just a single message to a single king and his personal fear over politics or the current events of his day. It is a much bigger sign. And whatever it is that Ahaz could have dreamed of, whatever he could have asked or thought, God the Father provides exceeding abundantly beyond all we could ask or think. There is nothing in Ahaz's imagination that could have thought of anything as glorious as, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So the virgin birth prophecy is more than a personal encouragement to a single wicked king. It is a national promise. It is a worldwide promise to the house of David in which the son of David was counted as a king, but also to all of mankind as the seed of the woman prophecy was given the very day Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.15, the very first virgin birth prophecy ever, is now getting more details. It's getting more details through this prophecy to the wicked king Ahaz. So it's for the house of David. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and a virgin will bear a son. See, it's the same virgin will both conceive and the same virgin will give birth. And all the Weasley commentaries that try to find a human explanation for this they say well she was a virgin until until she got pregnant now she's still a virgin when she gives birth and she will call his name emmanuel he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good how old are we when we become volitionally accountable how old was jesus christ when he was volitionally accountable And then back to Sheer Jeshub. I'm convinced this is Sheer Jeshub. The boy, not he, but the boy, will know enough to refuse evil and choose good. The land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. That's why he had his visual aid right there. That's why he brought his son with him. All right, Genesis 3.15. You familiar with this? Adam and Eve, sinless and perfect, listening to a snake, eating a fruit. 
okay? I grew up in Washington State. We're very proud of our apples. We are rather insistent. This is not an apple tree, just by virtue of our own personal prejudices, okay? Whatever the fruit here was, the text doesn't say, but the serpent deceived Eve. Adam was not deceived, but he ate anyway, willfully defied the Lord, followed the example of his wife. And yet God comes and he doesn't say to the man and the woman, where are the two of you? He says to the man, where are you? He's the accountable party. The man is accountable before the Lord. Remarkably enough, the woman ate, but nothing happened to her eyes. The man ate. And then in verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened. Her eyes were not opened because she sinned. Her eyes were opened after his eyes were opened when he sinned. And the accountable federal head of the human race plunged the entire human race into, uh, into his lost estate. This is the biggest what if I ponder from time to time. What if he would have chucked the fruit and killed the serpent? And what would he have done with her? Could he have been the kinsman redeemer as the last Adam was the kinsman redeemer? I don't know. All right. Point being now, when the Lord gives the judgment... And he pronounces to the serpent, because you have done this, verse 14, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And this is the very first virgin birth promise in all of Scripture. Now, there's no detail to it. It's not spelled out with the detail that Isaiah has. But the expression, seed of the woman is quite telling. So we understand men have the seed, women have the eggs. We can talk later if you need more. Okay? The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This is why I believe Antichrist, the coming Antichrist, it will in fact be Nephilim. Coming Antichrist is literally the seed of the serpent, even as our Savior is quite literally the seed of the virgin. All right, a virgin will conceive. And think of all the details that have come into place. We know uh, from the flood that he is the God of Shem, that the, the seed of the woman will not be from Japheth or from Ham, but from Shem. We know with the call of, of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that the, the kinsman redeemer will be Jewish. We know from the prophecies to Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah till Shiloh comes. And so we have the promise of the seed of the woman that's been narrowed down and narrowed down and narrowed down and narrowed down. We're looking for a Semite. We're looking for a Jew. We're looking for the tribe of Judah. It gets even more narrowed down, narrowed down within the tribe of Judah because the seed of the woman has to be of the, of the line of David, has to be a son of David that will reign on the throne for all eternity. So now we're looking for a Davidic Judean that's going to be the savior of humanity. The prophet Micah tells us he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and the prophet Isaiah says he will be born of a virgin. He will be born of a virgin. And we have all the particular details for which only one human being in the history of humanity has ever been qualified to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies. And that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. The only one who meets all of the prophetic expectations of what the coming Christ is supposed to be. More than just a personal encouragement to a single wicked king, it is a national and worldwide promise to the house of David and all mankind. Gabriel's message to Mary and Joseph confirmed the nature of this messianic prophecy. And here's your uh, scripture for the upcoming Christmas season. 
He comes to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, and he encourages her. She's going to have a baby. She's going to deliver forth the Christ. And she says, how can this be? I'm a virgin. Exactly. This is what was prophesied through Isaiah the prophet. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. Likewise, Matthew chapter 1, when he shows up to Joseph and Joseph finds out his fiance is pregnant, he starts initiating the divorce proceedings. And the angel Gabriel says, no, no, your wife is a virgin. Yes, she's pregnant, but she's a virgin. Again, the prophet Isaiah must be fulfilled. And I tell you, <laughs> I think Joseph is the most spiritually mature believer I've ever read about. That, that young man trusted in what he was being told. My fiance is pregnant, but you say she's a virgin? Okay. I believe you, Lord. Wow. There's some faith. Okay. On the part of Joseph. You can read about him there in Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. But think about the shame. Years later, years later, all the snipers and nitpickers and all the folks would be, after Joshua's dead, I mean, after Joseph's dead, say, well, we were not born of fornication. They were casting aspersions on his uh, parentage and the fact that uh, you know his birth certificate date was less than nine months from their wedding certificate. Okay? Isn't that interesting? The shame that Joseph carried. And yet he raised that boy. I think by the time it's clear, Jesus is 12 years old. He's the, the brightest Bible student those uh, people in the temple had ever come across. And we can think, I believe Joseph grounded him in the Scriptures as far as his adopted father and the humanity is concerned. um, Removing the human father from Jesus' genetics. I wish we could spend a whole month on this. Removing the human father from Jesus' genetics meant that he was born without a sin nature, that no good thing each one of us has within us. Removing the human father from Jesus' genetics meant that he was born without a sin nature and he was born without the condemnation of Adam's original sin. It meant that he was indeed the second Adam, the last Adam. He was truly able to identify with us as complete humanity, yet without sin. The necessity of the virgin birth, because it's sin. So I pointed out that he went to Adam as the accountable party. Their eyes weren't open until Adam sinned. Adam is the accountable party. And when sin is bequeathed, it is the sins of the, of the fathers that is passed to the third and to the fourth generation. The sins of the fathers. Genesis 5.3, Adam gave birth to a son in his likeness, in his image. Adamic fallen humanity gives birth to Adamic fallen humanity. That's why it doesn't matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever, your child is going to be a fallen human being that needs a Savior. Exodus 20 and verse 5 speaks of the imputation of the iniquities of the fathers to the children, to the third and the fourth generation, as it says there. It's the sins of the fathers. Isaiah 7.15, that even from birth he will know, he will know enough to refuse evil and choose good. He is morally accountable even from birth. That's unusual. Isaiah 53, 9, he was sinless. There was no iniquity found in him. He was the spotless lamb without spot or blemish. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, you got the first Adam, you have the last Adam. Contrasted there in that one very important verse. The first Adam became a life, a uh, living spirit, a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
Finally, Hebrews 4.15. He was tempted in all things, even as we are, yet without sin. Without sin. It was necessary for him to be born of a virgin that he would be born without the taint of Adam's original sin, without the condemnation. If he was born in Adam, then he himself would need a redeemer. But he is not in Adam. All right. There's a whole realm of doctrine that goes into that. (laughs) Now, is it necessary then for him to be born a virgin? Yes. But then after that, Okay, Matthew chapter 1. Is Mary still a virgin today? Is she the eternal virgin, queen of heaven? No. No. Not if words mean things. If until means until. Until doesn't mean forever. Until means until. In Matthew 1, we read that Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. After the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary had normal marital relations. They had at least four more sons, plural daughters. We don't know how many. Okay? The half-brothers of our Lord. Because he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and not after that. The virgin birth prophecy. Think about all the glories of what this is entailing. You know? And all the phonies to come along. (laughs) First of all, they've got to be Davidic. They've got to be born in Bethlehem. Now they've got to be born of a virgin. That kind of narrows it down. All right. And in the timetable that the prophet Daniel speaks of in terms of the 69 sevens and then after the 69 sevens, Messiah the Prince will be cut off and have nothing. There was so much expectation of the birth of Christ. That's why there were so many phony Christs coming on the scene during the days of Herod. The expectation was getting riper and riper and riper. But the pedigree, the credentials, the whole uh, record of the father-to-son lineage of, of David down to Joseph was, uh, was undeniable. They kept those records in the temple. Interestingly enough, after, uh, after uh, the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD, what happened to all their records? Could somebody come along after the first century and claim to be the Christ? Well, they could make those claims, but they would not have the, the testimony of the, of the records of their birth. All right, verses 10 through 16 then. God in his grace offered Ahaz any sign or miracle of his choosing is what we've been dealing with. The virgin birth prophecy. A virgin shall conceive and bear a child. A pregnant virgin. That gets your attention. Okay. Mary testified to it. Joseph testified to it. This whole thing about curds and honey. Let's, uh, I wish we could spend more time on this, but milk and honey, curds and honey. Land flowing with milk and honey. The kind of food that you have when there's nothing else available. The kind of food that babies can eat. The kind of food, when we have what stressed here is the age and how speedily these things are going to happen. Both with Emmanuel in verse 15 and then I believe Shir Jashub in verse 16. 
He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. At what age are you accountable? At what age do you know enough? Children must go grow to, and I think it's unstated. It doesn't say a number of years. It's an unstated age. Before they are held volitionally, morally culpable. We talk about the age of accountability. How old does my child need to be before he can accept the gospel? All right. To which I answer, as early as you can get them saved, get them saved. <laughs> All right. Give the gospel. And then give it the next year. And give it the next year. And keep giving it. Sometimes children will try to answer in ways that will please their parents or make them happy or say the things that the parents want to hear. All right, so give them the gospel and then keep giving it, keep giving it, keep giving it. I confessed last hour that when I got saved, I didn't, I didn't know about the deity of Christ. I didn't know he was God the Son. I learned that later, okay? Now, Emmanuel will have such capacity from birth. At the time he's eating the curds and the honey, he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. God built in the capacity in the virgin birth experience for the humanity of Jesus Christ to be volitionally, have the volitional capacity for obedience to the will of God. So that our Savior didn't just throw a temper fit when he hit the terrible twos and be disqualified from going to the cross. Isn't God a God of grace? <laughs> okay. Shir Jeshub will develop that capacity shortly after the ministry to Ahaz. And he says here, before the boy, I think he's talking about this boy here, Shir Jeshub, who he takes with him. If he's not talking about Shir Jeshub in verse 16, then there's no reason to even mention his name in verse 3 and why he's even here in the chapter. But I believe he's there in the chapter for the reason that he's going to be illustrated in this message. Before the boy will grow enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Now there were different traditions for this, different uh, ages when the Jewish people would hold a young man accountable whereby he had to go through his bar mitzvah, becoming a son of the covenant and, the, and uh, identifying as, an, as a man within the uh, community. Perhaps that's in view or something. But I think it's more in the sense of an accountable age as we think of the age of accountability. And as we think of the capacity to identify between good and evil, to know this is obedience, this is disobedience. And I believe our children learn that younger than we expect. When my mother gave me the gospel, there was no question at all. I knew what being a sinner was, and I knew I was a sinner. And this volitional capacity, I think, is, uh, is an interesting study. When David's infant died, he said, I will go to him. He shall not return to me. And I believe that's another verse that clearly portrays the age of accountability. Any infant, any child that dies before they're old enough to accept the gospel or reject the gospel. Finally, the last part of the chapter, the part after, you kind of want the chapter to end here, <laughs> right? Okay, virgin has a baby, who calls his name Emmanuel, great, end of chapter. No, Ahaz is not going to respond. Ahaz has no interest in the pregnant virgin. He has no interest in the hand of the Lord, even though he's going to feel it here. It's interesting, the Lord will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. There is judgment going to come upon the house of Ahaz, and it's like nothing that any king of Judah has ever seen before. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly 
got flies and bees. Flies from uh, Egypt and bees from Assyria. The Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will come and settle on the steep ravines, on the ledges of the cliffs. The rest of this chapter is judgment upon Judah. The Lord will shave with a razor hired from regions beyond the Euphrates. The head and the hair of the legs will also remove the beard. That's judgment, you know. When you're stripped naked, you're shaved. All the shame and disgrace of captivity. All right. God's wrath is poured out on Judah for placing their trust in man rather than God. See, here's the thing. Ahaz rejects this prophecy. Ahaz does not respond. Ahaz does not listen to the virgin shall conceive and bear a child. What does Ahaz do? Ahaz sends a bribe to Assyria. And Ahaz attempts to purchase the loyalty of Assyria. And so he uses Assyria as his weapon against Aram and Israel. It's not going to work out well. Okay. Psalm 118 says, Woe, don't, don't place your trust in man. Isaiah 30, don't place your trust in man. Don't place your faith in the ballot box. Ahaz is going to turn to Assyria for rescue from Aram and Israel alliance. Bad news. It's like turning to, it's like, a, what does Spurgeon say? He said, this is like a mouse asking a cat for help against those big rats. Well, the cat might show up and deal with those big rats, but you're still just a mouse. That made a lot of sense to me. reason why he's the prince of preachers. Ahaz turned to Assyria for rescue. See, remember, they were afraid of the Assyrians, so they were trying to beat up on Judah. So what does Judah do? Judah says, hey, let's make friends with those Assyrians. Hmm. Bad answer. I'm going to have to close with this. The coming Assyrian oppression will be worse than anything Judah has seen since Jeroboam's rebellion but it will not match the coming day of the Lord judgment. As it says, this will be the worst thing, such days as has never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah. This is the worst day since the divided kingdom. Okay? And that's bad. Don't get me wrong. It's bad. But it cannot touch the tribulation. When the tribulation comes... It is a day unlike any that there's ever been since there was a day. Since, since the beginning. Since there was a nation on the earth. Nor will a day ever come again like it afterwards. So take the time to read through uh, Joel 2.2, Daniel 12.1, Mark 13.19. In those passages we learn that the coming tribulation of Israel is a unique period of human history unlike anything that's ever come before or will ever come again. The day of the wrath of the Lord God Almighty. All right, is unique in human history. In language that is seriously more expanded than what we have here in verse uh, 17. All right, well, next week, chapter 8. More uh, messianic promises. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the virgin. Thank you for the virgin birth of our Savior. Thank you for his upbringing in the Word of God. Thank you for his obedience. Thank you for his work on the cross. 
And Father, uh, none of us were saved because of his virgin birth. But it was the virgin birth that qualified him. His obedience before you qualified him to be our substitute on that cross. I thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.